Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer closes out the Beatitude series called Life Signs of a Believer. If you've ever wondered what the attributes of a follower of Jesus looks like, they are described in the Beatitudes. Today, we look at Blessed are the Persecuted. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Blessed are the Persecuted. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. We are ending our series on the Beatitudes this morning. We have been talking about them for quite some time, going individually through each one of them. We have called them the life signs of the believer. Just as physical, there are signs of physical life here today, I, I take it for granted that all of you are alive today because your eyes are open. You are sitting here. Most of you are breathing. I suspect most of you have a pulse this morning, at least for a while until you go to sleep, okay? Uh, There are signs of physical life, and if they aren't there, we can declare a person legally dead. And likewise, there are life signs to a believer that there are spiritual life signs that if they're not present, one can take the pulse of a person's spiritual life, and no matter how many times you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or did what you did, that there needs to be evidence of spiritual life in you to declare one truly spiritually alive. We don't do these things to be saved. But because we are saved, the life of Jesus is now within us, and it should begin to look more and more like the life of Jesus. We've called them the growth chart of the believer. Our first lesson here was on the growth chart of the believer, that these beatitudes, I, along with a number of theologians, believe that these are arranged in a certain order, that the earlier the beatitude in this list, it tends to be that it manifests itself in the life of a believer sooner. Most of the first beatitudes themselves are things that you see when someone is converted that they are poor in spirit, that they realize they have nothing to offer God, that our good works are filthy rags, that they mourn over their sin, that they are a repentant individual, that we turn from our sins, there's a sorrow over sin, and I've changed my mind about how I think about sin, and I turn to Jesus. And then in the middle of the list, you see attributes of the growing believer, that they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, they're wanting to grow, they're wanting to grow in their understanding of God, they want to live out their faith. And later on, we're going to see here, like last week and this week, these are signs of the maturing believer. Last week, we talked about what it meant to be a peacemaker, that they now are actively engaging themselves in the work of God, that they begin to take responsibility not just for themselves and their spiritual growth, but they, they start looking around saying, hey, you know what? There's, out, there's people out here that I could bless and I could serve and I could, I could be a teacher. I can help grow things. And they want to be a part of the work of God that's a sign of maturity. And today, I believe this is in God's eyes, it's at the very end of the list, this is the pinnacle of Christian maturity right here. It's when you are willing to suffer for your faith. Blessed are the persecuted. We've got an image on the screen here that's probably familiar to many of you. What is that a picture of? That's my home. No, it's not. And be careful. Uh, you're right, that's Tiananmen Square. And Tiananmen Square, and this, this image is burned indelibly into my memory. I was still in high school at that time in 1989. 
And uh, back in the 50s, you know, the communists took over and there's the cultural revolution and there was, they, they were doing away with the four olds. And part of that four olds, by the way, is you and me, our old ways of thinking, old religious ideas. We're gonna throw all of that away. And there was an increasingly oppressive government regime that was, was pushing back the people and holding them from religious expression and other things. And so it came to a place in the 80s where the students were conducting things like sit-ins and hunger strikes. Eventually, you had hundreds, even thousands of students, and they were protesting in a peaceful way, if you will, at Tiananmen Square, which is ironically if, named, if you translate it, it means the gate of heavenly peace. And there we got tanks. See, that's how the government responded to that, these students who were sitting in. And what I want to point out here is there were hundreds, even thousands of students protesting there at Tiananmen Square but only one of them stood in front of a tank. Does that say anything about this particular fellow's resolve? I believe it does. The more that we were, are willing to suffer for a cause, the greater our resolve, our belief in it. And God is going to show us that here as a believer, the greater we're willing to suffer emotional and physical discomfort for the cause of Christ, the greater our resolve, the greater our maturity is that you're willing to suffer for things that are important to you. We'll suffer for, you know, important things like, you know, football. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll drive hours away. We'll, we'll pay the big bucks to get into the game. And you see these fans. You ever seen pictures of that? Especially those who are like in Buffalo. And they'll be sitting there, and there's like snow drifts on the fans. And they're, as they're sitting there, you know, shivering, watching their team play, you know. And they're just covered in snow. And they're like, wow, that is resolved. That's a real fan right there. I don't know that I'll sit through snow to watch a football game. You know, but then we have to look at ourselves and say, you know what, sometimes those same Christians, they'll sit in snow in a football game, but if it starts sprinkling on a Sunday morning, you know what I'm saying? Start sprinkling on a Sunday morning, you start questioning your resolve to get out of bed. Oh, it's dark, I feel sad, I really don't wanna get my hair wet, I think I'll just stay at home, maybe watch the live stream, or at least part of it while I'm eating my Cheerios. You know, that's, that's kind of what goes through our head. Our willingness to endure emotional and physical discomfort is a great thermometer to kind of reveal our spiritual temperature, whether or not we're a mature believer or if we're someone that's got a lot of growing left to do. Well, we're going to look at these three verses here today. Each one of them is going to correspond to one of our points. And so we're, first, we're going to look at verse 10. We're going to see here that believers are willing to endure physical discomfort for the cause of Christ. And verse 10 reads, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word persecuted means that you have an enemy, an adversary, somebody who lines up against you. They're opposing you in some way. It's somebody, this particular word has the idea that somebody is pursuing you. They're, they're going after you. They're trying to drive you out and they're willing to use any means possible to get rid of you. They're, they're willing to cause you trouble in emotional and physical discomfort to do it. Persecution describes everything that Saul did in uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 4, when God knocked Saul off his donkey, and he's sitting there staring up at his bright light, and God says, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so God summarized with this word persecute all that Saul had been doing. He was pursuing the church. He was imprisoning the people. He had people beaten. He had them drug off in chains and jailed. He even killed Christians. You know that it was the apostle Paul then who went by Saul, who actually consented to the death of the church's first martyr, Stephen. That was Saul saying, yeah, go ahead and kill this one. 
So all of this stuff is under the umbrella of persecution, this physical hardship that Christians go through. Now, I want to say that all suffering is not persecution. I've actually heard Christians in churches, sometimes they'll talk about their difficult life and how they're being persecuted for their faith. Uh, you know, some, some young guy, he loses his job and he starts saying it's because he's being persecuted, he's a Christian, but come to find out, you talk to the boss and really he just shows up late to work every day. <laughs> he doesn't wanna work very hard. That's not persecution. Some suffering we bring on ourselves. Just because you're a Christian and you suffer, it doesn't necessarily mean it's persecution. In fact, what does Jesus say? Blessed are those not who suffer because everybody suffers. Blessed are those who are what? Persecuted for what reason? Righteousness sake. It means that you are trying to live a life that honors God. Righteous refers to our right standing before God. That your life is pleasing to the Lord. And so in an effort to obey God's word, you want to live a righteous life. It describes someone whose orientation is pointed specifically at God. And your, your whole goal in life is to glorify him, is to be, live a life that's pleasing to him. And Jesus says, you're blessed. It describes the condition of a person who's born again, someone upon whom the grace of God has fallen and he's converted and changed you. He says, this is an evidence of your salvation that you're willing to suffer for what you believe. And so this person, they're willing to suffer physical harm at times for doing the will of God. Early church leader named Tertullian, he was an influential leader and a theologian at the African church and uh, wrote from Carthage during the Roman persecution. He said, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That was Obi-Wan Kenobi. I just want to see if you're paying attention. Y'all are going along with me. Oh man, that Tertullian's got some words. Now, but he did say something close to it. He said, uh, he said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us into dust. He says, your injustice is the proof that we are innocent. The same man said that the blood of the martyrs, you've probably heard this before, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That what fertilizes the ground of church growth quite often, it's not having peace and safety. In fact, that's the one thing God warned Israel about. Beware when I send you into a land where you got everything you want. Milk, honey, houses, fields, you didn't even have to work for them. Beware, when you have everything you ever wanted, what's that tendency? It's to forget the Lord our God, when we have everything we need. Tertullian here says the blood of the martyrs, when, when we start getting persecuted for our faith, he says it, it fertilizes the church and it helps it to grow in a strong and healthy way, it expands. Look in any country that's heavily persecuted, quite often, China included, that's where you see some of the greatest movement of God on earth is where the pe God's people have been hurt the most. They've been squished and crushed and suppressed the most. Persecution separates the wheat from the chaff, doesn't it? It separates the sheep from the goats, the true from the false. False Christians, false Christians will still come to church. By the way, just because people go to church doesn't mean you're a believer. False Christians, they'll come to church, they're willing to sing songs, they're willing to sit in a pew. False Christians, typically, they don't want to serve, they don't much want to give, uh, and they certainly won't endure persecution. Persecution always reveals who the real people are, because they're not going to take a hit for the team. In a lot of ways, Christians, we're kind of like quarterbacks on a football team. We are subject to the coach who is above us, okay? And uh, as a quarterback, the coach kind of puts together the whole team in a certain way, arranges you in a certain way, gives you specific roles that each one of you is supposed to play. And you get out there, and as a quarterback, you are there to work together with everybody else to coordinate to get the ball down the field. 
Now, a quarterback, he receives the snap and he gets the ball and he kind of goes back and he's trying to decide, you know, who is open? Who am I going to throw to? And as he's doing that, there's a number of things going through a quarterback's mind. He's, he's looking for his guys down the field if he's doing his, his job well, and that's all he's looking at. And he's just going to plant and he's going to deliver. He's going to throw. But sometimes he'll catch the eye of a defensive lineman. Any of you guys ever play a, a defensive lineman role? You're probably a big fellow. Oh, yeah, there we go. We got some defensive linemen. Uh, these are frightening fellows, okay? They, they're terrifying. As a quarterback, and the quarterback usually isn't the biggest guy on the team. You know, he can throw, but he's, he's not on the line for a reason, so he's not the biggest guy, but he's got the biggest guys the other guys have to throw at you on the other side, and they're snorting. They do that. They're snorting. They're, they're uttering curses and insults. They're talking about what they're going to do to your family and their honor. And, and uh, they've got yellow eyes and smoke is coming out of the helmet. They've got a skull tattoo on their face. Okay? And so it can be a terrifying thing. And so you know you've got a job to do. You've got to deliver that ball down the field. But you see these, this guy and he's snorting and he's going to bust through this guy who missed practice for the last two weeks. And he's, he's guarding you. And he's going to bust through there. And you're starting to weigh out whether or not it's worth completing that pass or should I preserve myself. And he gets in football what are called happy feet. And happy feet are not a good thing, by the way. It's, uh, and then these happy feet are, he starts kind of looking like a boxer in the ring, you know, and he looks like Ali in there. You know, he's starting to go, oh, should I, should I? Throw? Instead of just planting and delivering, this guy starts getting nervous. He starts getting scared. And a lot of times that'll lead to an incomplete pass, possibly an interception, you know, getting sacked. It's, it's a problem. And in a lot of ways, Christians, we can do that in life too, can't we? God, is, as our coach, has given us a job to do. He's given us something we're supposed to do. We're supposed to get this ball down the field. We're to advance the cause of Christ. But then we go out there and we start looking at the rest of the world and they don't love Jesus like you do. And it's terrifying to have the world stare back at you with yellow eyes, you know, and they're angry and they want to, you know, they want to destroy your message. And then we start getting happy feet as a Christian. We start dancing around the truth. Oh, I'm not really that kind of guy. I'm not like what you know. And, and we start avoiding having spiritual conversations with people because we're scared. We don't want to be persecuted for our faith. It's not something you wake up in the morning, I can't wait to be, you know, mocked and scorned, have something thrown at me today. We don't wake up like that. It's not natural. And so sometimes we will dance around the truth. Now, as we preach on blessed are the persecuted, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is preaching on persecution still a relevant message for today? Are people still getting hurt for their faith today? If you were to do some, now in America, we've been fairly insulated here for the most part so far. But if you travel around, do any kind of world travel at all, you're going to discover that there is greater persecution now than any other point in time in history. Did you realize that? There is more persecution. There are more Christians losing their life now than at any other point in time in history. I have not, I've had the opportunity to work with an organization called the Voice of the Martyrs. And they kind of, they, they try to keep track of Christian martyrdom and Christian persecution around the world, provide aid and comfort for them. And uh, some of the statistics they, they issue out are that one out of seven Christians has experienced great persecution in the last year. And that's counting America in there too. One out of every seven. Great. And then when they say great persecution, they don't mean, you know, somebody looked at you funny or they mocked you or they said something mean about you behind your back. Great persecution. You died for your faith. You were beaten. You were jailed. One out of seven. In 2021, there were more than, or nearly 17 Christians that died every day for their faith. 
every single day. More than 6,000 Christians lost their lives, not just heavy persecution, were killed for their faith just in 2021. This is the bloodiest time of history for Christians. I myself, when we were working in China, talked to a number of brothers and sisters that were heavily persecuted. I could tell you stories when we were working amongst Tibetans of people who, because of their faith in coming to Jesus, they were turned, not even just the government, their own people turned their back on them. And they would no longer employ that person. They would no longer allow that person to conduct trade. Uh, A lot of people wouldn't sell them things or would sell them at, at exorbitant prices, and they were hungry. There's another fellow amongst the Tibetans we were working with who the government came in, they shut down their church, they gutted it, they put chains around the door and a video camera to make sure nobody got in and out. Other times the, the government was even more forceful. I've got, a, I've got brothers and sisters in Yunnan province who the government came in and they raided their church during the morning worship service. Can you imagine that? I mean, just imagine for a minute that you're in that situation. You know, if I didn't think the guy would get shot by all of you who are concealed carries, you know, it would be really impactful to have a bunch of guys just come in here, you know, with, with, with toy guns or something and just surround the church. Give you that feeling, just a taste of it. Imagine that at any moment in time, the government might bust in here with machine guns. And this brother, this brother in Christ talked to me about how their women and children were being held at gunpoint. While they ransacked the church, they gutted everything in it, took it all off, hauled it off, and destroyed it. And then the men were brought off for questioning. Many of them are in jail. Some of my friends and partners are still in jail to this day. And so, no, persecution is happening very strongly all around the world, and I think we'd be foolish to think that we're never going to see it happen here. Can persecution come to the United States, the home of the free and the land of the free and the home of the brave? It can come here. In fact, you're seeing a little bit of it now. But let's not be so foolish as to think that it won't happen. Personally, I fully expect, and I'm I'm saying this not to scare anybody, but I fully expect to see physical persecution within my lifetime on these shores. The foundation has been laid. If I had to predict, I'd say it's probably going to come over the issue of homosexuality and transgenderism. The church is going to be labeled as a hate group. I personally believe the first thing that their government's going to do is require churches to sign something that they agree to. And if you don't agree to it, you lose your 501c3. What happens when a church loses their tax status? I'll I'll tell you what's going to happen to most churches. You're not going to be sitting in a building anymore. If we were to have to pay taxes on this building and this property here, do you know how much that would cost? We don't take in enough offerings to cover that kind of tax. And we'll be meeting in homes. Now, don't go out there and say Heath's trying to get us to meet in homes. He's saying if persecution comes and they take that away, that's a very real possibility. How would your faith do if we weren't meeting in a building? If this building wasn't here, would you still be dedicated to the Lord? That's something to ask ourselves. A mature Christian, that's not even a question. Of course I'm going to be dedicated because the building isn't what makes us a church. The church is the people carrying out the mission of God. But that could happen. I firmly believe that after that, they're going to start fining churches fining pastors, eventually jailing pastors, and eventually working its way down to the people. If it came down to that, and you were going to be fined or imprisoned for your faith, would you be willing to go through with that? Some of you, maybe. For a lot of us, maybe not. Because we haven't really thought through that. Oh, well, that'll never happen to me. But that's something that we have to think through. In fact, we're not supposed to be surprised when persecution arises. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 12 says, you, however, have followed my teaching, Paul's talking here, my conduct, Paul says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. And then he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Which leads us to ask the question, am I living a godly life? Most of us would think, well, yeah, I'm pretty godly. What does he say will happen if you are living a godly life? Go ahead and read it. What does he say? You'll be persecuted. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, are you sub is your faith costing you anything today? If not, do we still possess the right to say that we're living a godly life? Paul says that if we are going to live a godly life, we're gonna do life his way, we're gonna follow his teachings, we're gonna share the gospel, we're gonna be discipling people, we're gonna be dedicated to church, we're gonna raise our kids a certain way, we're gonna treat our mates a certain way. He says when we do this, it's gonna bring persecution. The world doesn't like you. So in as much as we're willing to live outwardly and live obediently to God, we should expect that some kind of persecution will come and only the mature, honestly, are gonna step into that. Mature Christians or, or false Christians, they're gonna back way away. They're gonna be like, ah, <laughs> I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for a few songs and maybe a church potluck from time to time. I didn't sign up for any of that. But Jesus calls us all to this maturity. He says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, by the way, to come after me is another way of saying that you confess Jesus as Lord. You're choosing to be a disciple. To come after Jesus means I'm gonna follow him. And back then when you followed a master, a teacher, a Lord, you would, your desire was to become like them, not just to gather intellectual knowledge, but to watch their life, to imitate their behavior, to become just like them. And so Jesus says, if anybody's going to come after me, what does he have to do in Luke 9? You gotta deny yourself and you gotta take up your cross daily. This is not a fun message. We're not gonna go home and say, wasn't that a warm, fuzzy message? I just felt so good about myself after listening to him preach today. This is a, but it is a serious message that we all have to give contemplation to. He says, all who desire to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And he says, whoever would save his life, in other words, you're gonna play it safe. You're gonna do the easy thing. You're gonna appease everybody out there. You're gonna live a comfortable, cushy life. He says, if you're gonna save your life and make that the most important thing is your physical life, he says, you're gonna lose it. It's not characteristic of a true believer. He says, whoever will lose his life, that you're willing to sacrifice your earthly comforts here for a spiritual cause, he says, those are the ones who gain it. And then he asks the question, what does it profit you? You, you who wanna play it safe in this life, what's it gonna profit you if you gain the whole world? but you lose your own soul, you forfeit yourself. That's not much of a good deal. And so Jesus associates here taking up your cross with denying yourself. To deny yourself means that your body, your flesh is always giving you little signals here and there. I mean, your body has them, right? Your body talks to you and tells you to do things. This morning it told you to sleep in. It told you, some, some of you, it may have told you to go ahead and, and, and yell at your kids. This morning, some of you, uh, you know, uh, little Debbie whispers sweet nothings into my ears from time to time. Go ahead and have another nutty bar. It's not going to hurt you that much. Yeah, we get those. Our flesh, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Our bodies are always talking to us, telling us, you deserve this. Come on, Joe. You don't have to let them talk to you like that. Give it back to them. Don't go to church. You, it would be so much more fun just to do a quick live stream, catch part of it, go out and mow the lawn. You know? And there's always something that your body's talking to you. Jesus says, if you're gonna follow me, if you're gonna be my disciple, you've gotta get into the practice of denying yourself. It means saying no to our flesh when it's commanding us, when it's trying to take over our lives. Deny yourself. It's like Mission Impossible. You ever watch that? I watched the series on TV growing up as a kid. Uh, long before Tom Cruise, age 60, is sprinting down the road, you know, and catching planes and all that. I can't believe the guy's still doing these movies, but somehow it's believable he got a 60-year-old guy catching planes. 
But uh, I love the, the uh, Mission Impossible series and you'd have this group of, they're not highly paid people, but they're highly trained, aren't they? And the reason they're doing what they're doing is because they believe in the cause of the security of the United States. And so you've got this, it's a secret governmental group and they'll give you these messages. Long ago, it was like on a record or a tape that would self-destruct, remember those? And uh, they'd get this message and then he'd give them this impossible mission and then how does every one of the Mission Impossible missions uh, end? He gives them, a, gives them a warning, doesn't he? Should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will do what? Disavow or deny. He's going to disavow you. It means that he's going to. You're, he's not going to provide you aid. He's not. Gonna, they're not going to pretend that they even know you. They're not going to rescue you. They're not going to listen to you when you beg for them to do something for you. This is what God is calling us to do with our flesh: is to disavow our flesh. I'm not going to give you what you want, flesh, just because you want it. Okay, we're still going to eat, but I don't have to be gluttonous. I still need to sleep, but I don't have to be slothful. You know, but I'm not gonna just live my life according to fleshly impulses, my, what my body says to do. Go ahead, slander that guy, he has it coming. I'm not gonna listen to my flesh, I'm gonna deny my flesh and take up my cross and follow him. This, that means that this, this choice not to obey my flesh but to walk in the spirit is a daily choice. As Christians, we're usually really good about giving God our whole life, right? You've been to camp, and eventually, you know, the preacher, he'll get up there, and after the 27th stanza of Just As I Am, you know, you decide somebody's gotta walk down this aisle, and you'll come down there, and you will dedicate your life to the Lord. God, I give you all of my life. It's all yours. Take it. I wanna, I wanna serve you my, my every day. The rest of my life is all yours. I'm gonna dedicate my life to you. But then, you know what's easy to do? You go home. <clears throat> we gave our whole life to Jesus, and then we begin to take it back one day at a time, don't we? Jesus doesn't ask us to dedicate our whole life to him. We can't handle that kind of, that's too broad of a scope for us. What does he ask us to do? He's asking us to dedicate ourselves to him every day. That we wake up every morning and say, you know what, Lord, this is your day. This is the day the Lord has made. And I'm, I'm gonna honor God with this day. I'm going to choose this day. Whatever tomorrow's gonna be and whatever yesterday was, doesn't matter. But today, I'm going to choose to live in a self-disciplined way. I'm not gonna obey my flesh. I'm going to walk in the spirit. And we give that to God. We're gonna see number two here that believers were willing to endure emotional discomfort. It's not just physical harm that we're scared about. Often, it's verse 11, if we'd be honest as Americans, this is what we fear the most right now. There's probably not too many of you guys are worried that someone's gonna walk in here with a bag of machetes, you know, and, and just attack the church. Satan doesn't have to do that with us. All he has to do is get us scared that somebody might say something bad about us. And so verse 11, Jesus says this, blessed are you, once again, the condition of somebody who's under the grace of God, somebody who's truly born again. He says, you're blessed when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And so a believer, especially a maturing believer, are, are willing to endure greater and greater levels of emotional discomfort and still follow God faithfully. Like I said, this is all typically it takes. It's not the threat of being stoned or beaten or jailed. 
For most of us to back away from our faith, to back away from the truth of the word of God, to not share the gospel, all it takes is for us to be afraid that somebody might say something bad about us. Oh, they might be offended. They may not like me. They might uh, not wanna be my friend. They might leave the church. They might leave my class. They might leave my ministry. So I'm just gonna play it safe and I'm just never going to speak words of truth. I'm not gonna live obediently to God and we walk in fear. Reviling means to defame a person, to rob them of glory. It's the opposite of giving them glory. It's to defame them. It's, to, it's when somebody says something to you or about you, and it might be true, but they say something to you or about you with the intention of lowering people's opinion of you. Has that ever happened to you? Has it ever happened to you for righteousness sake? Because you were taking a stand on the gospel. You're taking a stand on the word of God. You're sharing your faith and somebody reviles you for that. Has that happened to you where people speak about you? Congratulations, you've been reviled. Jesus said you're in a blessed condition. You're willing to suffer for your faith. Only mature believers are gonna do that. He also says when people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, this is when now they go from, they're, they're done attacking your position and who you are. Now they're just gonna make up stuff about you because they just hate you that much. The truth about you isn't enough to make you look bad enough in the eyes of others. So I'm gonna really lay it out there and I'm gonna lie about you. Like they did with Jesus. They paid people to lie about him. Have you ever been lied about? Not just lied about, but lied about for righteousness sake, because of what you teach, because of what you believe, because of what the word of God says, because of how you operate your home. Has somebody ever lied about you behind your back? It hurts. But Jesus says, expect it. In fact, he says, you're in a blessed condition. He says, uh, when they do this, uh, they persecute you, they utter all kinds of evil, falsely on your account, you are blessed. It's an evidence that you're a growing believer. Jesus said all of his children will be reviled, and yet they're in a blessed condition. And the reason we're talking about this this morning is just to prepare the church. Friends, we're, in, we're not the home team anymore. Have you noticed that? Christians are not the home team we used to be. It used to be actually that we wanted Christian presidents. We wanted Christian public leaders, wanted Christian teachers. Now you say you're a Christian, we're almost embarrassed to admit it. I've gone to church a couple of times. You know, we don't want to admit that we're a believer anymore because we're not the home team and people are going to call you all kinds of names they are gonna lie about you. Just like they did the early church. They lied about the early church. You know, they used to accuse the early church about uh, being cannibals. What we just did here this morning, they used to slander the early church and say that we practice cannibalism because we say we eat the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, is that true? Did you eat the body and blood of Jesus this morning? No, you did not. You ate a symbol of it. But they got lied about. And so we should expect that people are going to lie about us for righteousness' sake. And so this is to prepare us to, for the persecution that's gonna come both outside of the church and within the church. Hang on. Is there persecution that happens within the church itself? Oh, you better believe it. Where was Jesus' greatest opposition? Was it outside? Was it the Roman government? The Roman governor was trying to set Jesus free. Who is it shouting crucify him? It's the religious leaders. And so you're gonna face persecution even within the context of a church, even a good church, people who are religious, but they're not dedicated to Jesus. They're not dedicated to his word. And they're going to persecute you. They're gonna lie about you. They're gonna slander you. Hopefully nobody resorts to violence, but that can happen. Are you ready to face that? Are you ready to stand up for what you know to be true because of that? 
Truth is, we need believers who are that kind of strong. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 11, talking about spiritual warfare, he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. God commands us to be strong people because mature believers are bold believers. If you lack boldness, friends, it's, it just means it reveals that there's an area of your Christian walk that God wants to mature you in. He wants you to be bold, but not bold because it's in you to be bold. He's not saying be bold because you're big and strong, one of these defensive linemen we just pointed out here today. You don't have to be a big guy to be bold. You don't have to be a man to be bold. You don't have to be, have a, a nice, strong, you know, Randy Henneke booming voice, you know, to be a bold person. You don't have to be a tall guy. You don't have to be a big person. You don't have to be good looking. You don't have to be wealthy. Because when he commands us in Ephesians 6 to be strong, we're to be strong in what way? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And so God can enable any believer to be bold and strong. Remember, it wasn't Saul who was bold on the field of battle against Goliath. Saul, remember, the Bible described Saul as a man's man. It says he was head and shoulders above everybody else. It means the next tallest guy in the nation, his head came up to right about here. That Saul was a big fellow. If anybody was gonna stand up to Goliath, it should have been him, but he didn't. He was cowering in his tent. Who was bold? A young man. A man not even old enough to fight. It's the water boy. It's the guy bringing food, sack lunches. Here's your bologna sandwich, here's your bologna sandwich. Hey, who's that guy yelling at us over there? Oh, it's this guy, Goliath. He's mocking our God and he's mocking our nation, so. But he was bold because he was bold in the Lord. He was confident in what God can do. And that caused David to have a great boldness that he stood up for what was right. The rest of the people were not bold. He, sa- he commands us to wear the whole armor of God that represents Christian maturity. That you are a fully mature believer and as such, he commands us to stand. It's the Greek word histami. What does that sound like to you? A histamine? You guys know what histamines are, don't you? This is Kentucky and this is spring. There are some of you who are... <coughs> Right? You got the allergies going, don't you? That's your histamines at work. It means it's an allergic reaction. There's something your body's going, ah, don't like this pollen. Get this pollen out of here. And so your body releases this chemical into your system called histamines, and they go up and they oppose, and they, you know, they attack, and the casualties of, the war, of war are your sinuses. And so your body, it does this enough times, and you're like, man, I, I realize we've got to fight these pollens and things in our body, but I need to get sleep. And so what do you pop in your mouth? an antihistamine. It's something that tells your histamines, hey, hey, back down, quit fighting. Stop fighting so much. The casualties of war is I can't get to sleep. So stop fighting. We take antihistamines. In a very real sense, this is the word that we are commanded as Christians, that when something comes in and it's not right, we are to stand our ground. Don't let it push you away. We, we stand in opposition to what is false, what is in error, what's against God. To histamine, we stand up. In fact, in Ephesians 6, we're told it four times. He says we are to stand against the schemes of the devil. God wants you to be bold. He commands us to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. And then the very next word is stand therefore. Do you get the idea of what God wants from us that is mature believers? He wants us to take the word of God, and he doesn't command you to attack the forces of hell and to take ground for God. That's, that's Jesus' job. The battle belongs to the Lord. What does he call us to do? Put on the whole armor of God, be a mature believer, take the word of God, and stand your ground. Just don't move. Here's the hill. Stand there. Don't move. Don't let people move you away. Satan's antihistamines, the things that cause us to back down and to stop resisting and to stop walking obediently and faithfully to God, 
for, mo for most of us, it's when people revile us and speak evil against us. A lot of times that's all it takes and we will back off and we won't stand anymore. Who is it that will stand? Those who have the full armor of God, those who are mature believers. What does it look like to be an emotionally mature Christian? There's a lot of symptoms that you're an emotionally mature Christian that you are willing to take an emotional hit for your faith. First of all, you're willing to share the gospel. Let me ask you this. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but how many of you guys have ever shared your, the gospel with anybody ever? Now ask yourself the reason why. If you'd be honest with yourself, for many of us, it's that we, we're just scared, we're nervous. We don't wanna be branded as the crazy Christian, the Bible thumper, the whatever evangelist you wanna call yourself. You don't wanna be branded, so we don't share our faith, and so we back off. Satan's antihistamines of slander and people talking about us back us down. What else does it look like to be an emotionally mature Christian? We don't back down from social issues and right and wrong. We're not afraid to say that killing babies is wrong. We're not afraid to say that God created man and woman. There's two genders. Because that's what God says. Now, if, if we're scared of people slandering us, we're gonna back away from that. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be ugly. We don't have to beat people up with the truth. God doesn't cause, tell you to change the whole world and how they think. He just tells you proclaim the truth and don't back away from it. We can be lovingly disagreeing with the world. It means we don't quit ministries just because they had a disagreement. You know, you're working in Awanas and you, know, you get crossways with one of the other workers there and you're like, I'm out of here. Is that an emotionally mature thing to do? It's not. God wants us to work out our problems. In that same way, we don't abandon friends because of a disagreement. We don't walk out on our mate simply because we don't like them or something bugged us. We're willing to suffer emotional discomfort for the sake of righteous living, for the sake of living in accordance with God's word. I'll go one step further, friends. If you're an emotionally mature Christian that you're willing to suffer emotional discomfort for the sake of what is right, you're not gonna be a church hopper. What is church hopping exactly? It's when you bounce from church to church because you don't ever wanna experience emotional discomfort. It's when you get into a church, you start planting in, you start rooting down, and then once you start to get to know people, you realize, wow, they're not perfect here either. And then you get bugged, and somebody says something, it offends you, and it bothers you. And we decide, you know what, I'm just going to avoid any kind of emotional pain whatsoever, and so we just walk away. Hey, here's another church. I mean, I've got, what, how many churches in Ashland? Like 150, 200 churches here? You got your pick of the litter, friends. You could go anywhere. But can I encourage you to find a church and plant yourself in and grow deep? We're in gardening season, right? Any of you guys gonna plant a garden or attempt to plant a garden that the deer won't eat? You're gonna get out there and you're gonna till up some part of your yard and you're gonna plant some seeds in the ground and you're gonna water it and you're gonna fertilize it and you're gonna weed it. Come mid-July, maybe you'll start really maybe gaining some fruit from that, some kind of vegetation, produce to cook for your family. What also comes out mid-July? Japanese beetles, they are an invasive species. They're here in Kentucky, those little shiny green things. You ever seen them? I got a picture of one if you want to see it. They're really gross. Um, you get these guys here in your garden. You see them, they're not healthy for your garden. You do not want them there. In fact, their grubs, their little larvae will eat the roots of your plants and they're gonna kill your garden. And let me just create a scenario for you here. You've tilled the ground, you've planted the seeds, you've watered, you, the plants have grown up, you've got all kinds of tomatoes and onions and cabbage or whatever you're growing and you go out to the garden you say ah ha, ha, I got green Japanese beetles in my garden what do we do I know what I'll do I'll go to another part of the yard maybe the front yard 
and I'm gonna till up new ground. I'm just gonna tear it all up, and I'm gonna go to my old garden, I'm gonna yank out this tomato plant here, and I'm gonna replant this tomato plant in a new garden. I'm gonna do the same thing with my cabbage, I'm gonna do the same thing with my carrots and my potatoes. I'm gonna uproot it all. I'm gonna dig it and I'm gonna put it back in the ground over here in a new garden. Is that a healthy way of doing gardening? Is that what you do? If you do, let me tell you what, you got a dead garden, don't you? Either that or it's a very unfruitful garden because now what you're asking these plants to do is expend all kinds of energy to reacclimate to that ground and spend energy and time just putting their roots down again and they're not gonna produce the same way if you just left, let them be. Do you know the same thing happens with a Christian every time you church hop? As soon as you hop church and go, somebody hurt me, I got offended by something, I'm gonna run to this church where I can start all over again and don't have any more pain in my relationships. And what do you find? Wow, this church has Japanese beetles too. (laughs) There's sinful people here. And then what are you gonna do? You're gonna spend the next probably a couple of years just putting roots into that church, getting to know people, earning their trust. You're not as fruitful as you will be or as you could be, or as you had been. It takes a long time. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to do. He wants us all doing a big, uh, what's that game with the chairs and the music? Musical chairs. Brilliant. (laughs) He wants a big musical chairs thing going on with the churches where we're all just like, and we sit down at church. Oh, and the music's playing again, and we're gonna go down, we're gonna find another church. We sit down there, and we're just bouncing all around. And all the while, We're not producing vegetation. We're spending all of our energy just putting roots down in new churches and we never produce fruit and Satan's, he laughs his head off because we never get fruitful. By the way, if you have Japanese beetles in your garden, what do you do? You can't ignore them because they will destroy your garden, but what do you do? I looked it up online. I'm not a professional gardener, but I did look this up. The way you attack Japanese beetles in your garden, you're not gonna like my answer. It's you address them one at a time. What I've heard is you got soapy water, you can spray them on your plants and protect them somewhat. But then they said what you do is you get a bucket of soapy water and you individually find these beetles and you put them in the bucket of soapy water. And you find a grub and you put it in the bucket of soapy water. You look around, what do we got here? We got another one here. And you're handling them one by one, individually addressing the problems. Do you know that's the same way that we address problems in the church? You don't just get all mad and keep a ledger of all the things that you don't like. I'm mad about this in the church and I'm mad about this in the church and here's what I don't like about the church and here's what I don't like about the church and we're just, you're just creating a big ledger of everything you hate. How do you handle problems in the church? You go to people individually. Like a Japanese beetle, you go directly to that person and you don't accuse them, you don't get nasty. You ask questions, say, hey, I've got some thoughts because some concerns, I'd like to talk and pray with you about some things. And then once you've left it there, you leave it there. You don't have to control them. You don't have to dictate the outcome. You just, but you've communicated your concerns and you left it. And you say, you know what? I'm gonna trust God with this one. I'm gonna take that Japanese beetle. I'm gonna address it head on. I'm not gonna ignore it. I'm not gonna just bump over and find a new garden. Otherwise, churches are gonna be wildly unhealthy. Number three here, we're gonna see that as a believer, we, a willingness to suffer, it reveals our identity, it reveals really who we are. It separates the men from the boys, the sheep from the goats. If you're willing to suffer either physical and or emotional discomfort, that you don't cut and run every time you, there's a little bit of emotional pain there, but instead you, you go to it head on with boldness and maturity and say, you know what? I'm gonna find that beetle and I'm gonna address it directly in a loving, kind, direct, but private way. That's how we keep this garden clean. That's how we keep this garden healthy. 
So, but the, and that attitude reveals our spiritual identity. Look what Jesus says in verse 12. When you suffer physical and or emotional discomfort for the sake of living rightly, doing what's right in the sight of God, when you do this, he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they or persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, when people are slandering you or if they're throwing rocks at you, is that normally something you're gonna rejoice about? No, you're not rejoicing in the pain itself. You're rejoicing in what that pain signifies. It's like a weightlifter. I don't know, there might be some psychotic weightlifters who actually enjoy that pain of destroying your muscles. And that's what you're doing. You're breaking them down. You're lifting weights. Why are they lifting weights? Is it because they enjoy hurting themselves? Nobody enjoys waking up the next day in just miserable pain. You can barely walk. But why are they doing that? Because they're looking forward to the day when they're going to be in shape or they're going to be all, you know, muscles bulging in things, ways that my body doesn't do. And they're, going to be, they're, they're living for that day. They're enduring pain for now, but they're looking at the future. And, and that's what we as believers do. We, we don't love pain, but we endure the pain because we know what that says about our heart and life. We rejoice... Because when we endure emotional and physical discomfort for the sake of what's right and for the sake of the gospel, he says, great is your reward in heaven. So you don't have to like pain, but do realize that it's a great, it speaks very strongly to the evidence that you're a true child of God when you're willing to suffer emotional and, dis and physical discomfort for the sake of what's right, for the sake of living obediently to the word of God. Rejoice and be glad. He says, for so they persecuted whom? The prophets. He says, when you're willing to endure suffering for your faith, you're willing to go through emotional and physical discomfort for the sake of obedience to the word of God and doing what's right for accomplishing the mission of God. He says, it puts you into a category that God categorizes the prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament were the godliest people of their day, the pinnacle of Christian maturity. Not perfect people, but highly mature ones. Not everybody was willing to suffer for their faith. The prophets would. Jeremiah, man, they beat the guy up. His family turned his back on him. They exiled him. They, they jailed him. They threw him in the bottom of a well. When God says that we're willing to endure emotional and physical discomfort, not only does it say that, we, that it speaks to our conversion, but it speaks to the fact that you are of the highest echelon of maturity in your belief in, your belief in Jesus Christ. You're willing to, you're willing to talk, talk softly to somebody who's yelling at you. You're, emotion, you're enduring emotional discomfort. You're willing to stick it out in a church and work through your problems. You don't just cut and run. You're willing at times, if, this, if it were to be called upon for you, you might even be willing to endure some measure of physical discomfort. To lose out on job opportunity. All for the sake of the gospel. God says that this is, when they did this to the prophets, they did it because they were the mature ones. When you're willing to endure emotional or physical discomfort, you are in this category of a highly mature believer. Jesus said this in Hebrews 11, 36. The Bible tells us, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. That's all these physical things that can happen to us and also things that are just uncomfortable. They went around in skins of sheep and goats and they were destitute. They weren't worried about their standard of living. They were willing to sacrifice some of their standard of living to live for the Lord's purposes. He says they were afflicted, mistreated, and look what God says about them, of whom the world was not worthy. Jesus is so pleased to see when his children so believe in righteousness, so believe in him, so believe in the truth that they're willing to suffer for that. 
It speaks to your maturity. He's, he's never more proud of us, if you will, than when we are suffering for him. He says the world is not worthy of such high quality individuals, ones who are willing to suffer for their faith. Now we're not asking anybody here to be sawn in two. We're not asking anybody to be martyred for their faith. But if that time came, what would happen? If we're not willing to endure emotional discomfort here, how many of you think that when physical persecution arises in America that we're gonna be able to stand against it? If we're not willing to be slandered and talked about over here, what makes you think that when they start jailing Christians, you're gonna stay strong? What's gonna happen when persecution arises in America is the house of cards that is often the American church is gonna collapse in on itself. And you're gonna see very quickly who are mature believers and who are just playing a game. It is persecution, suffering physical or emotional discomfort for the sake of obedience to the word of God for righteousness sake that reveals who we are, what quality of Christian we are and whether or not we're a Christian at all. As we close here this morning, my wife and I, after we came off the field, we weren't quite sure what God was gonna do with us ministry-wise, and we're looking all around trying to figure out where is God gonna plant us for ministry? Uh, we were in North Kansas City, and because of that, we got like a discount to the Kansas City Zoo, and we loved going to the zoo. And there were these little placards all around the zoo. We loved, in particular, going around like the Africa region there, and there's all these animals are in the same habitat, or you'd have all these birds together in the same little what do they call them, aviaries or something like that? And you had all these animals together, but they had these little plaques. So we loved to look at the plaques and we're reading through them. And we, want, we love to learn how to identify these creatures. And then we'd try to find them. Where are they? Oh, I think that's one of these guys here. Hey, that's one of those guys here, but he's missing some feathers. He got pecked on, you know? And, and we, just, we just thought it was so funny just to try to identify from the plaques. Hey, that's called a, you read that for me, honey. You know? But it was fun to read these plaques and try to figure out you know, where these guys are and if we could identify and find them. Friends, that's the church. We're a zoo. You heard it here. The church is a zoo. We got herbivores, sometimes carnivores, the ones that eat the herbivores. Okay, we got, uh, we got omnivores. They'll eat whatever. They're just in it for themselves. Uh, we've got all kinds of different critters here in the same in church enclosure. How can we tell who is of the genus species Actualis Christianus? It's not real, by the way. <laughs> who is the actual Christian? How can we tell? God gave us a plaque. God gave us identifying characteristics and marks that show who are the true Christians. They're called the Beatitudes. You can read through, theoretically, you can read through these Beatitudes, look around, observe the behavior of others, and you can spot who have been converted by God and theoretically who has not been converted. Because your conversion has nothing to do with what you wear today. It has nothing to do with the fact that you came to church. It has nothing to do with the fact that you wrote something in the front of your Bible or that your mama or a pastor told you that you're born again. It has everything to do with are you converted? Has he changed you? Do you look like this? When we look at the Beatitudes, are you poor in spirit still? It's something we do early in our conversion, but are you still poor in spirit? Do you still have that humility, realizing that apart from God, you're nothing? Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you still believe that? And it brings a humility of spirit. Christians mourn over their sins. They're repentant. They're constantly taking the word of God and looking at it like a mirror. And they're asking God to change them. Blessed are the meek, someone who has a settled confidence in God, a faith in him, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to follow you and I'm willing to have you guide my steps and it's gonna change how I treat people. Are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Are you content with just coming to church or is your coming to church an intention to grow? That's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Your attitude toward church and D groups and community groups, 
is different. You're hungering. You want to grow. Uh, blessed are the merciful. God's true children are the most merciful, forgiving people in the whole church. Is that you? Do you easily and quickly come over to the side of, of uh, forgiveness when somebody hurts you? Are you pure in heart? You don't, not just that you want people to look at you good, not, to, not just to protect your reputation, you want to be pure in heart on the inside. You want to be clean. You want to be holy like God is. Blessed are the peacemakers. You're active in your faith. You don't just want to come to church. You want to invest in church. You want to invest yourself in the work of God here. You want to get involved in the faith of others, helping create peace between God and man, sharing the gospel, or even helping create peace between man and man, but that the peace of God that fills your heart is just spilling out all over your life. And finally here, blessed are the persecuted. You're the kind of person we look in this church and we see somebody slander you and they're mean to you and they're yelling at you and we see nothing but peace coming back, that you're willing to suffer emotional discomfort and you're still gonna do the right thing, okay? That you're willing to endure hardship even outside of the church for your faith. These are the character descriptions of a true Christian. I just wanna pose this question to you as we close. If somebody were to look into the enclosure that is this church and they look at all of us in this little zoo that we're in and they look at the plaque of the Beatitudes and they see these characteristics, would, if they were just to observe your behavior and how you treat other people, would there be enough evidence to identify you as a true Christian? Father, we thank you this morning as we pray. This uh, series, as we close it on the Beatitudes, Father, I pray that you'd help us to all be reflective, that we would be mourning over sin. God, if there's areas of our heart and life that do not reflect this, Lord, I pray that you would make it evident to us that there could be some of us who just, they're not in our life because we're not convinced ourselves that we're a believer. Lord, would you help that individual come to a place of understanding that they need you and that they would come to a place of faith in you? If there is any here today, Father, who do not know your Son as Savior, would you draw them to yourself today and begin to manifest these traits and attributes in their heart and life? Lord, give us the humility to see ourselves not as we wish to be seen, but for who we really are. Give us the honesty and humility to look in the mirror here today, in the Beatitudes, and to be open and honest with you about what we see, and to be willing to repent, to have a change of heart and mind, to line our lives up with the truth of what we see here. God, may we be true and genuine believers. May the lost world come in here and identify that there is true faith in Jesus amongst these people. We ask all this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.